0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books and African American Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. On today's episode, I'm hosting a great friend and colleague, Dr. Tyler D. Perry. Not that Tyler Perry, but the author of Jumping the Broom, the surprising multicultural origins of a Black wedding ritual. In our conversation, we discuss how a white brother from Las Vegas, learned about this Black wedding ritual, how his research took him abroad, not to Africa, but the British Isles, and how he may even have a personal connection to jumping the broom. Enjoy the conversation, family. Welcome to the podcast, Tyler. How you doing today, my friend? Doing
0: very well, Adam. Glad to be here.
1: Likewise, likewise, man. You you have the uh, distinct uh you know i don't even know what the word would be at this point it's been a long day but you are the first interviewee of 2022 for me so, <laughs> so it's a great way to start out the year
0: yeah i couldn't think of a better way thank thanks for letting me know that that, that puts a lot of pressure <laughs> on me now, hey
1: look man you you got you know dr jennifer Morgan is following you dr crystal eddins we got you know we got a lot of heavy hitters uh here in this year 2022. And I'm taking a bit of hiatus uh in a couple months. Um, and you know, to take care of this dissertation so I can get that DR in front of you. And we ain't just talking about Dominican Republic here. Uh <laughs> so definitely want to do that. Um, and so it, it makes me very happy to uh bring you and AI chess um together here on this amazing book and also. You're one of the books that put me in the acknowledgement. So, shit, I got to have you on the podcast for that alone, right?
0: Yeah, I think people would start to wonder if uh, (laughs) if I wasn't on. But, yeah, no, I mean, to to be very honest, uh, I'm deeply grateful that we could do this. And and you deserve to be in those acknowledgements. I mean, um, the questions you've posed on Twitter and the conversations that we've had actually really did help in framing a lot of the aspects of this book. So. Kudos to that. And best of luck as you start the process toward completing the dissertation.
1: Hey, man, I appreciate that. I appreciate that, my friend. And so, uh, you know, we got the book right here in front of us. Congratulations on this amazing book that I think, as we talked about uh, before um, I pressed uh, play here and, and to record, i think this book is going to change how a lot of people think about the broomstick concept in terms of how it deals with matrimony um especially in the lives of not only black people and folks of african descent but also folks in the greater uh anglo-atlantic shall we say um so before we get into the book here I think we have to set some 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 terms here. I don't think everyone, even if they look at, you know the the title, might not even know what the actual what does a broomstick have to do with marriage. So before we get into the the actual contents of the full book here, what does jumping the broom uh, what does jumping the broom mean? That's one. And secondly, what factor or factors spurred a white brother like you to write a cultural history of what many believe is an exclusively African-American wedding ritual? Let the people know, my friend.
0: So I have to say that's a, those are two perfect questions to start the interview with. And so to answer the first question very succinctly, um, jumping the broom effectively is a very, a very literal Way of understanding this process of matrimony, in that throughout space and time, various cultures, including people of African descent, North America, have used a broomstick as a method for matrimony. And they literally jumped over the broomstick. Now, we can get in, as I'm sure we will much later, as to what that looked like, what the factor was. But essentially, the only requirement was that you took a series of vows, usually in front of your community, you jumped over a broomstick, and the community essentially had cemented you as a married couple. Um, and there are a variety of different ways forward toward that, but that was the essential feature. Now, the the other aspect that's important to note is that jumping the broom could also be less literal in that. If you look at folk speech, particularly in the South or in rural areas of the United States or even within certain parts of Europe, when people will say to jump the broom, what they usually mean by that is just to get married. So you don't necessarily have to physically do so, but the idea of getting married by jumping over the broom emerges from that literal tradition, but it becomes an aspect of colloquial speech. So saying, when are you going to jump the broom? They're essentially asking, when are you actually going to Get married, or when are you going to tie the knot? Which is another colloquial phrase that extends from a literal practice. Now, to the second part of the question, this is one area where I would suggest to you that if I start to meander a little too much, to probably stop me because this can go on for a very long time. <laughs> no worries, but, man. I got you. As to what led me to the project, and so probably the the earliest points, and and this is mentioned in my acknowledgements to some extent, but when I was in my third year or so as an undergrad, I took a class called comparative slavery, which at that time was taught by a professor who was new to the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, where I got my BA in history. Didn't know who he was. Um, I just knew that the class fit within my work schedule for the next semester. And so I took comparative slavery, not knowing really what the class is going to be about. Like it it suggested something along the lines of looking at different systems of slavery, but I didn't know if that meant ancient times, uh, modern times or what. But, you know, as that semester starts, all of a sudden um, an individual walks into class. um, He was somewhat casually dressed. uh, And all of a sudden he starts going up to the front of the room and starts essentially the lecture on comparative slavery. And I, I figure out that this is Professor Kevin Dawson. And you've had Kevin on, your, on the podcast before. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, he wrote an excellent book um, about uh, maritime traditions in the African diaspora. And what was cool about my opportunity to take him at this time is that he was newly emerged from graduate school. I think he had just gotten his Ph.D., a couple of years beforehand, and he was really in that process of looking at the material and trying to transform his dissertation into a book. So he actually used the class to work through some of the materials that he was looking at. He had us read articles that he'd written about African swimming traditions in both Western Africa and the diaspora. And to kind of make this a relatively short uh, description, I was pretty much hooked. Uh, on that material due to his really dynamic form of teaching, but also just the sources he was introducing to the class. So the spark that really ignited my interest and encouraged me to consider pursuing academic study of history of the African diaspora was that class. And then later on, I would approach him. I, I kind of became that student that always attended office hours to the point where the professor was probably looking at me with some side eye thinking, why is this person always bothering me about, uh, (laughs) but, um, you know, he was always gracious with his time. And at some point I I think I even asked him, I said, you know, do you like what you do? seems like you really like what you do. Cause I didn't really know what a professor did. I, I honestly didn't. I, I took, I majored in history because it was just something that I was interested in I wanted to get a college degree and I wanted to pursue something that I enjoyed. And But I didn't really know what that was going to turn into. I imagined that I would go teach um, at maybe a public school within the city of Las Vegas, or most people said, you'll probably just end up going to law school. Now, so I asked him, I said, what, what does a college faculty member do? What does a professor do? Because when I, when I first read something that he wrote, I said, oh, wow, he's an author. Like He actually wrote something. And, and that was really cool to me. And I was thinking, well, you know, I like to write. I like working through ideas. I wonder if I could ever publish something like that. And from the get go, he was amongst the most supportive faculty members I could have asked for. Like he really was invested in training me to understand the parameters of what it requires to attend graduate school for academic study. So that was the first spark that guided me toward this eventual direction of looking at the, the broad framework of Atlantic history and people of African descent within that framework. Um, the second aspect of this is also listed in the acknowledgments that might be much more obvious in that I was also engaged during this, uh, this process. I had been dating um, Chanel, who eventually becomes my, my wife, but we met kind of in tandem as I was discovering a lot of these A lot of these different um, pieces of evidence and over time we got engaged and as I was approaching the final semester of my undergraduate we were also in discussions about what our wedding would look like and she's a, a woman of African descent she's a black woman and she wanted to jump the broom in homage to her ancestors and we had seen a couple of our friends do it. Um, They'd gotten married about six months before we did. And she thought that it would be a good idea to do it, but no one in her family had done it before. Like at least in her immediate family, her mother hadn't done it. I think she got married in the eighties at some point, but there was no tradition of like her grandmother having a broom or her mother having one. So we were kind of discovering a lot of the evidence together. She had taken a class at UNLV about African-American dance, where they discussed the ritual, but it wasn't in a lot of significant detail. I had been reading some of these sources in Kevin Dawson's class, but the kind of the catalyst point that would lead me into this specific direction of investigating the history of Jumping the Broom is that the minister who married us didn't know much about the tradition. And so he, knowing that I was a curious history major, suggested to me that I should go And do some investigative work for him and um, just you know provide some information about the broomstick ritual and so for me being an ambitious undergraduate who was anxious to go to graduate school looking forward to the possibilities i used my resources with the university library so kind of as a side note for any undergraduate that listens to this just realize that access to a university library is an incredible opportunity. Like Google does not take you nearly where you need to go in this type of investigative research. So I was using all of the materials that were available to me before my before essentially it ran out upon graduation. So I was able to access a lot of really interesting data. And one of the most unique things that I found were these old articles and sources that talked about this tradition of jumping the broom in what we would now call the British Isles, but specifically in areas concentrated around the modern region of Wales, but also in Scotland, but also among um, traveling communities like the British Romani. And this was kind of blockbuster material for me, as, as they might say, in that Most people, my wife and me included, just envisioned it strictly as something that African Americans did um, and that it was unique to African Americans as kind of a cultural group. But now all of a sudden I'm confronting this information across the Atlantic that says that it's possible even that the communities in the British Isles that were doing it predated the African American tradition. And so Essentially, I take all of this material, I write what is a pretty extensive report, and I'm delivering this to
1: the minister <laughs> as we're meeting with him <laughs> before we
0: actually do this. I can ceremony. only
1: imagine how this went.
0: Oh yeah. So essentially it was it was a really short conversation in some ways, but he just looked at me wide-eyed with this stack of papers on his desk <laughs> and just basically said I'm thinking more along the lines of like six sentences. <laughs> and and I said, oh, OK, because effectively for him, he says that there will be people at the ceremony who won't know exactly what it is. And he just wanted to provide a brief description of why the tradition was being used within the ceremony and really describe kind of the beauty of it. And so I understood that. But at the same time, I was thinking I have all this information, which I found really compelling. And I was thinking, what do I What do I do with this? And so leaning on Kevin Dawson once again, I go home, probably a week later, I send him this email saying, you know, I'm preparing to go to graduate school. I think I was still waiting for acceptance letters at that time. But I say I found all of this information on this custom called jumping the broom that while used pretty prominently amongst enslaved people in the United States I'm also finding that it existed outside in particularly the British Isles. And I said, do you think there's anything here? And he gets back to me pretty quickly and he says, I think you have a lot to go with. I think you should consider pursuing this. And, you know, if, and when I got into graduate school, which I eventually did at the university of South Carolina, he recommended that if I end up working with Daniel Littlefield, whom I did end up working with to let him know about my ideas. And so Whereas I think a lot of people discover their topics in graduate school, they might take a class that introduces them to a topic that they find interesting. For me, mine was very much embedded in a personal experience of excavating materials, using a historical method to do so, and then stumbling upon something that didn't seem to be discussed very much in the literature. And so as I was going through the process of looking through the existing references to Jumping the Broom, I found that a lot of scholars of US slavery mentioned it, but very few had gone very far in actually trying to explain it. And so that's, I think, where I found my niche. Now, it took a long time to develop. Um, This book is... uh, as old as, as old as my wedding. I mean, over 13 years at this point. So. Well,
1: congratulations to that. And also if I, if my Facebook and my Twitter feed are correct, uh, we should also be celebrating, uh, you and, and, and your wife's uh, recent, um, uh, anniversary, if I'm not mistaken.
0: That's correct. Yeah. Lucky year 13. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I've been together over 15 years. And so, you know, I, I technically started this project, um, right before we got married in January two thousand nine, and then the the book was published in November twenty twenty. So it was over a decade old at that time, I'm older than both of my children at this point. So it's it's been with us, I say me and my wife for sure, um, ever since we've been married.
1: Well, this is a great way to start our interview here because I think it's important to to set the boundaries of first of all, like I said before, what is jumping the broom? What does that actually mean? And also, how did you um, and in this case, your, your wife get involved in the actual, uh, jumping the broom process. And, and did y'all actually, if you don't mind me asking, of course, did y'all actually jump the broom?
0: Yeah, we did. And so we did the traditional method to where, um, there was a, a we got married outside in a kind of a traditional Christian centered ceremony. Um, we did a unity candle. We did the, the vows, the pronouncement of man and wife, we did the salutation. And, and then we turned around and jumped over the broomstick. And fortunately, ours was laid on the floor because I don't know if I would have been able to clear it if it would have been any higher. So we, we did the uh, traditional jump over the broom, just a single jump and then walked through the aisle to um, the reception.
1: Well, that's beautiful, man. And so, uh, pivoting to the more academic aspect of it, which hey, I'm glad that the personal blends into the academic a lot. Um, so, so traditionally, um, scholars, especially historians, uh, turn their their dissertation project formally into their first book. And and if I heard you correctly, your dissertation was close but not all the same. So uh, can you talk to us about why you ended up choosing? We know how you, why you chose the topic right, as a point of inquiry, but why did you end up choosing this for your first academic monograph um, in, in your academic career?
0: Yeah, this is a great question. And, and there's, some, there's somewhat of a story behind it. I think that I don't really recommend people do it the way that I did. Uh, my tenure clock was a little bit different, so it allowed me... Um, a way to wander to where I could take a little longer to produce my first book than conventionally speaking. But essentially, my dissertation looked more at marriage traditions amongst West Africans and the circumstances and the local conditions that kind of required them to adjust their marriage patterns once they um, landed throughout the Americas, but specifically the British Caribbean as well as British North America. And so I start the dissertation in Western Africa and look at the methods of marriage and courtship um, all throughout the Atlantic coastline. And then I do my best to track um, cultural change, but also cultural retention uh, throughout the diaspora up to the 19th century. So the Jumping the broom or the broomstick wedding appears in my dissertation, but in a very different fashion. Um, it I don't spend a lot of time explaining the contemporary importance of jumping the broom. It's more or less one among the many traditions I describe in the dissertation, um, but it's not the prominent one or the preeminent feature of it. Whereas my master's thesis was about jumping the broom, like that was the the first scholarly thesis I had really produced in graduate school. And ever since I completed the thesis, it had always been in the back of my mind that someday I am going to finish this um, in the long term and turn it into a book, because I felt that there was a demand for knowledge about this particular tradition. I mean, movies have been made about it. It's been featured in some of the most prominent cinema featuring African-American history or black actors. And so I always thought that this is one of those topics that I felt needed to get out there at some point. But for the sake of completing my dissertation, that's a priority in graduate school. But there are a variety of reasons as to what leads a person to decide what their first book is going to be. Um, it's a good idea to take kind of the practical route to revise your dissertation because it's more or less ready made to be reviewed as a book after you know some revision and maybe some additional research. But my one of the things I was warned about before I went into graduate school by one of my advisors, and she said this very kindly, it wasn't meant in any particularly malicious way, but she said that the trouble I was going to have not only in graduate school, but also with the profession is that... I had really broad interests, and it was hard for me to stay on one topic. And so when, by the time I completed my dissertation, I, I had every intent to revise it and turn it into a book, but at a certain point, I started getting a bit distracted with other things. So you go into the profession, you start doing services. Um, I was at a teaching institution at the time, so I was doing a lot more teaching and prep for teaching. And just trying to figure out academia. Now, long story short, I suppose, um, when when it came time to return to my book project, in the back of my mind, jumping the broom just kept reappearing. Something was just telling me that that was the book I needed to write first. And I was thinking, well, this means I have to go back and kind of re-excavate a lot of these sources that I probably maybe hadn't looked at in five to six years at that point. Um, though the first publication I had was based both on my thesis as well as my dissertation, which was an article I, I wrote for the Journal of Southern History called Married and Slavery Time. And it looked at the, the Atlantic perspective of this particular ritual. And so because of the success of that article, a lot of people responded very favorably to it. I thought, you know, I want to see if I can produce a book about a ritual, like a, a specific cultural ritual. Because the more that I had looked at pop culture, the more it seemed to me that jumping the broom was never going anywhere. Like there, there are individuals who don't see it as a valuable cultural icon, but then there are others who remain firmly attached to it. And so it seemed to me that an intervention could be made because I had done all of this research over uh, this series of years. And so I also remember that at one point, uh, it was when my first daughter was born. She's now five and she was never a great sleeper. Um, and my wife worked the night shift. So it was, it was me and the baby (laughs) pretty often, usually me holding her, trying to get her to go back to sleep. And I remember just kind of staring at the ceiling saying, I'm going to write the book, jumping the broom. That's the one that I want to write. That's the one that excites me the most right now. And so I think maybe if Anybody's listening to this looking for some advice on how you produce your first book is that you just have to make sure that you are still as excited about that topic as when you began it because for me what motivated me to go back to my thesis rather than my dissertation is is that is the topic that I was the most on fire about at the time and that actually made completing the book much easier because You know, while I was holding the baby, I was typing with, you know, one hand and just trying to get the sources in there. And, you know, it's such a blur now. I don't even remember most of it, which maybe is a good thing because it shows that I was actually focused on the work at that time. So I don't know if that's a satisfying answer, but for me, it was just that that is the project that spoke to me the most. And I realized that if I was going to write a first book, that needed to be it.
1: And I think that's a great answer, um, not only because it's very truthful, but I think it's also informative, uh, because um, as, as you certainly know uh, from our uh, uh, dalliances over these last couple of years, uh, I'm also a, I don't know if you want to call it scatterbrain but I'm certainly someone who is uh, very interested in a, in a myriad of different topics um, and try to find ways to, to, to quench that thirst um, and so thank God for for black perspectives and mm-hmm. and uh, these other spaces to to draw from. Um, and there are also community spaces as well, um, virtually and, and in person, um, but especially virtually, you know, within the pandemic. Thank God um, yes. for these spaces, of, uh, for sure. And so um, that's a great way to pivot to question number three. Uh, because of the broomstick ritual is so much about community, what intellectual communities helped foster the writing and research process research process of this text?
0: Yeah, so this is a good question as far as you know, defining communities and intellectual communities. I would say that the first thing that comes to mind is one you've just referenced in black perspectives, because I had never considered blogging before. Um and, it, and I think it was just because it really wasn't something that was introduced in the profession when I went to graduate school. Now, fortunately, I've, I've had the great opportunity to know and be friends with Robert Green, who has also been on this podcast before, who is a prolific blogger and public intellectual. And I remember-
1: Lord, when he, Lord knows, Lord knows. Yeah,
0: well, and, and that's the thing is I remember when he started blogging in graduate school, I was, I was kind of curious. I didn't know what he was really doing or what he was thinking when he did it, but- What I didn't know was that that is what really allows a person like me, whose mind wanders pretty often to get ideas down on paper and, you know, produce short pieces that speak to broader topics and can inspire subsequent research and productivity of scholarship. So one of the publications I I most enjoyed writing was, I think, back when Keisha Blaine was the senior editor of the blog. I produced a piece about jumping the broom, like very short 1500 word analysis, just really understanding these aspects of culture, cultural traditions, what it means to change one's culture or exchange one's culture across groups. And I remember she really liked that piece. And I was kind of surprised because to me it seemed really kind of basic. It was just something I was I had been thinking about for a little while. But that really spurred and motivated me to actually finish the Longer Book Project. It provided a framework and a source of inspiration to say, well, this is something that I think a lot of people will find valuable. And so I don't. I think that if I hadn't have joined Black Perspectives or agreed to be a regular contributor, like without that requirement to produce a piece every month or every other month, I'm not sure if I would have found the motivation I needed to actually put words to the page. So I'd say that Black Perspectives as an intellectual community was one that introduced me to a lot of people whose, whose frameworks and methodologies I really admire. I've really enjoyed um, reading J.T. Rohn's work um, and his use of theory and the different forms of methodologies that he uses. And, and so I think that This digital space, the digital landscape, has provided an intellectual community that has really fostered um, my own creativity. I never thought of myself as a particularly creative writer, but I think that reading other people's work and having my work edited by individuals that I greatly respect in that space has produced a far superior book than I think otherwise would have been. But I mean, obviously, one of the answers is also I've had great support from people I knew in graduate school, Robert Green being one individual. He was always really excited about this project. I remember the first time he and I ever met each other. I told him that I was working on this paper back in the day about jumping the broom. And the first thing he asked is, can you send that to me? And I was just kind of astounded because I'm like, well, oh, <laughs> That's so cool. we have enough reading to do, but he wanted to read the, the additional piece because he found it so interesting. So, you know, I've, I've really leaned on him for a very long time, but also um, beyond graduate school, my committee, you know, Matt Childs, who was, uh, and Mark Smith. Such
1: a great guy. Such yeah. a nice guy. Yeah.
0: And Thavolia um, Glimp was on my dissertation committee, but she was actually. Oh, shit.
1: Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Goodness. Well,
0: actually, and what's interesting is that she was on a fellowship in Columbia, South Carolina, when I worked in the Institute for African-American Research at the mm. University of South Carolina. And so we actually shared an office next to each other. And I don't know if she remembers this, but I remember one time her and I got into a conversation. And, you know, I, I had read her book by that point. And I thought she was just a brilliant writer. So the fact that she was talking to me was a big deal. And I remember I told her, I'm like, well, I'm working on this project about jumping the broom. And she said, Can you send that to me? And again, i <laughs> And so with some trepidation, I sent her an article or a chapter I had published in an edited volume. And she actually got back comments to me. Like wow. she actually read it and provided commentary via email. And so that's another aspect of it to so where you, you just meet people and you kind of just have to take a chance that they'll they'll talk to you and, and are interested. And you'll find that a lot more scholars than you might think are very gracious with their time. And and they want to see good things come from people who are thinking about new topics. And so, but I I would also say that my intellectual community is also my family and and my in-laws. They they have been bedrocks of support ever since they first heard about this project. And my in-laws have always been incredibly supportive. Um, Every time I would tell them about the project, they would say, well, you're going to finish it. You're going to finish it. When you finish it, you're going to send us a copy. And so you, you kind of, I kind of needed that reassurance and also expectation to finish. And uh-huh. with, with Chanel being with me for the entire time this project has existed, one of my motivating factors is that I always wanted to finish the book so I could dedicate it to her. Because mm. he deserves to have her name on the book as much as I do, because we've also moved cross-country for this project. So
1: yeah,
0: yep. Yep. Time. So I would say the intellectual community is even broader than just people that I studied with. It's, yeah. it's people that have asked the best questions as long as I've known them.
1: Yeah, no, that's beautiful. And it reminds me also, um, I told you about a, a cousin of mine who passed away a couple years ago. Um, Arthurie uh, Loney Ricks. Uh, she graduated, I'm guessing, in maybe the 70s, 60s or 70s um, uh, from USC. And I remember when on her deathbed, actually, I'd actually visited Robert. Um, uh, it was before we knew her illness was terminal, but I remember telling her about my friend Robert Green um, and, you know, that I was going to go see him. And because I remember um, my mom and I, who's was, who's was still there too, um, we went to Lizard's Thicket, and that oh my gosh, that food is so good. Good, food. yeah, yeah. That when I when I come back to Columbia and, and the the area, I got to go back. And so I remember she remembered on her deathbed, she still remembered my conversation. She actually asked about Robert. That's one, and then also she remind she I didn't know this, but I guess it was a Bobby Donaldson. Um, I never knew that she knew him. Um, and so it's just wild just thinking about, you know, and obviously this is a prelude to our conversation, um, our forthcoming conversation, uh, with you and Robert, um, about your invisible, no more edited volume with you and your, uh, USC homies, uh, as well. Um, but, but, you know, it's, it's why to me, USC is always going to have a special, uh, special place, not only the people that have come from there, like like you, Robert, and, and the host of other folks, but also, you know, the the, the, the institution in my own family. So it's good to hear about the important intellectual community that helped to foster uh, this amazing book, which brought people like Kevin Dawson to say, when blurbing this book, this innovative book will have significant impact on our understanding of slave culture, American culture, in the historical process, but hey, y'all, there's more. Not only did Dr. Kevin Dawson say that, but none other than Bound in wetlock author Dr. Tara W. Hunter to say, readers who are familiar with the broomstick wedding ritual identified with enslaved African-Americans will be stunned, as I sure, certainly was, to learn of its complex origins. Tyler D. Perry challenges misconceptions to render a riveting historical reconstruction of cultural exchange and innovation and there's more this is the most lucid and comprehensive history of the ritual which draws a rich array of archival visual literary and popular culture sources A must read (laughs) we we can
0: end right there probably actually
1: (laughs) (laughs) right oh my gosh first of all like I, i i would i didn't plan on asking this but you know i was like i gotta do this how does that make you feel reading and or in this case listening to folks who you cite throughout the book and probably just in your own like like formation as a scholar. I know you brought up uh, Dr. Kevin Dawson, but I know you, had, uh, you cited Dr. Hunter throughout the book. How does mm-hmm. it make you feel to see their, um, their, their blurbs along with Dr. Erica L. Ball as well? So I'm
0: pretty sure that when I saw that uh, Dr. Hunter had called the book a must read, that I, I might have fainted for a brief moment and, and then took <laughs> social media and probably did like one of those all caps posts <laughs> to where I said, Dr. Tara Hunter called my book a must read. I couldn't believe it. I mean, that it was, you know, I always believed in the project. I knew the work was solid. But, you know, throughout the time that I had written this book, all the way extending back to graduate school, people had told me about Tara Hunter's work. I mean, every time I would um, talk about it with people they would say, you know, Tara Hunter is working on a book about 19th century African-American marriage. I said, wow, that's that's incredible. And, you know, once that book came out, I mean, it was just a brilliant book. I reviewed it favorably for one publication. And then when I I met her once before the book came out, I think it was when it was about to go to press. And um, she had told me because I told her I'm a a big fan of your work. This is very I guess one of the things about me is that the story of my you know, intellectual trajectory is that I meet people at conferences and I kind of act like a big fan every time I meet many of them. They're always very kind to me. Um, and, but Tara Hunter had told me, she said, I'm a big fan of yours too. And I said, there's, there's just no way. But she had read the Journal of Southern History article and um, she, was, she was very complimentary of it. And then when I had heard she had agreed to blurb the book when UNC told me, and then when I read the blurb, I, I think it basically solidified to me that I shouldn't have any further doubts about my position in you know the field or in the profession that somebody I admire um, to that degree said my book was a must read. I don't know if it could have gotten any better than that. So, you know, I, I knew I was very happy when Kevin and Erica Ball made their statements. They wouldn't have made them if they didn't fully believe them. But when I, when I saw that Dr. Hunter had made that, that blurb, I was, you know, I was smiling for about probably a month after that. Like, there's nothing that anyone could tell me after that point.
1: <laughs> Look, you know, uh, Kanye West has many problems, but he did say that bar, and they can't tell me nothing. And so, hey, it is representative <laughs> when it can be. So, um, wow. yes. yeah, man. So so I do have a question, too. Pivoting to uh, the book here, um, you know, I noticed that you rightfully so leaned a lot on, um, slave narratives uh, and slave uh, enslaved people's uh, autobiographies. Um, so I did have a particular question about uh, representation and 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 authority here too. So mm. how representative are slave narratives in terms of how we understand the prevalence of jumping the broom? And does it matter to the importance of the ritual in Black U.S. communities that I believe, according to your findings? only 28% of formerly enslaved narrators conducted the actual ritual according to their uh, biographies. I ask because I know how significant that point is for the overall project.
0: Great question. Um, So I think the first thing to make um, pretty clear for people who otherwise don't deal with slave narratives is that there's a variety of different types of narratives. Sometimes Uh, When people talk about slave narratives, they they place all of them together in this general framework. But when you look at slave narratives throughout different centuries, they're actually very different from one another. So if you look at some particularly produced in the 19th century, uh, be they antebellum or postbellum, they're largely um, written from the vantage point of kind of an abolitionist framework. So they are using their recollections of enslavement after they escaped to condemn the institution and to convince Northerners to push further and harder to end the institution in the South forever. But there's a particular set of narratives that are a bit more distinct that come a little bit afterwards that are collected in the 1920s and the 1930s. These are usually classified as the WPA narratives, Works Progress Administration, but oftentimes those include um, testimonials that were collected prior to that particular administration. So you actually have independent researchers or faculty members and Black academics who are going in through communities like Louisiana and Virginia and collecting the folklore and the folk customs and recording them. Amongst some of the last known living formerly enslaved people. And so the initiative um, on the federal level during the era of the Great Depression was that out of work authors were offered money to effectively write for the federal government. And the thing they were tasked with doing was to go all throughout rural America, but many of them ended up going to the south to essentially preserve the folk traditions of a dying community. Was is kind of how it's usually described. So you have elderly Southerners, both black and white, being asked a series of questions about their life, particularly. And this becomes particularly unique when talking about African Americans, because these writers were able to find a pretty good amount of people who had memories of slavery or either they experienced it themselves or they had an immediate parent that gave them the stories of enslavement. So the the distinction is important to note because in reference to what we call slave narratives, when talking about jumping the broom, jumping the broom is not referenced very often in the written sources by formerly enslaved people in the 19th century. There's a few references, but it's not taken nearly as seriously until you get to the resources that are collected amongst enslaved people in the early 20th century. And one of the reasons why is because these individuals, as far as one can tell, were not usually expecting to be interviewed. They just saw a person, usually that person was white, approach their house and ask them a bunch of questions about their early life. So within these sources, they'll usually describe um, slavery. They might describe Reconstruction and then go into Jim Crow, talk about violence, talk about the Ku Klux Klan. And so they're pretty wonderful sources for understanding on the ground level what life was like for individuals in various parts of the U.S. South. Now, all of that to say, the reason why these sources are important for Jumping the Broom is because that is the group that spoke of it very authentically. So if they were asked, how did you get married as a slave? Usually these individuals would usually describe if they had kind of a Christian ceremony or if the plantation they were on typically had Christian ceremonies, they would describe the minister. Was that minister white? Was the minister black? Um, What was the clothing that was worn? What was the food like? Did people dance afterwards? They would go into great detail about the processionals they witnessed. But then all of a sudden you start to see these references to enslaved people jumping over a broom. And most of the interviewers, as far as I can tell, had no idea what this was. And on occasion... They would ask them to specify what they meant, go into further detail about what that involves. And what I found collectively in the sources is that there were a variety of different ways that people jumped over a broom. And so just to go into a little bit of description, because I think this is important, these sources took the folklore seriously. Um, Now, there were some that were suspicious about this particular custom. They thought it was something that people should leave behind. It was a relic of slavery that no longer had any value for African-American cultural identity. But the vast majority of people who referenced it referenced it either favorably or as something that was just done within the community. And then they would describe the process. Sometimes individuals would have what you might call a formal Christian ceremony, and they would jump the broom afterwards sometimes enslaved communities would undertake the broomstick ritual independently. So they would go to the quarters, have their own ceremony where they would jump the broom um, within the community. Sometimes they would jump backwards over the broom. Sometimes they would jump over the broom multiple times. Sometimes they would jump over the broom sideways. Sometimes they would hold hands. Sometimes they wouldn't. Sometimes the woman wouldn't jump. And sometimes that meant she actually didn't want to get married. So what I, what I started to see And this is where I thought that my intervention in literature uh, was gaining some meaning, is that when previous analyses had talked about jumping the broom, they had, in many ways, viewed it as kind of this homogenous ritual, kind of a very generalized fashion of just jumping over a broomstick. But what I was finding is that the descriptions were vastly different from one another, which suggested to me that there were either regionally specific ways of jumping the broom or that a specific form of jumping the broom was specific to a a community of people, that they were able to innovate and develop their own meaning and um, performance of the custom independently. Now, in regards to the second part of the question about the number of people jumping the broom, this is where there was another intervention that I actually had to deal with a little bit as far as how I thought about it. So on the one hand, when people first see the number, you know, 28% or so are are referencing jumping the broom um, and the other, you know, 75% or 70% or so, we're talking about other customs. For some people that reflects this idea that it must not have been as important. Um, But I think that's only because in many ways the previous scholarship had portrayed it as the primary form of marriage. Um, But none of those analyses, as far as I could tell, with with the exception of maybe one article that came out in the Journal of Southern History, had tried to kind of count all of the references to it. And so what I did that was a little bit different is I read through um, a 40 plus volume set called The American Slave, which is a compilation of a variety of different uh, works, progress, administration, slave narratives, and they're essentially cataloged by state and and serial in in that way. And so I basically said, I'm going to sit here at my desk, read through these as, as carefully as I can, and just track all references to marriage that formerly enslaved people reference. And so I found that it wasn't the predominant ritual that enslaved people used, But that told me a couple of things. On the one hand, it told me that marriage was a far more diverse process than people had fully considered. Like it was not a single thing that enslaved people did, but a number of people had essentially um, determined their own framework for how they understood marriage. And, And even to the point where it is important to also consider the reasons why people chose not to do any type of ritual. But in regards to jumping the broom, um, even if one says only 28%, one in four is still a lot of people to me. And we also have to realize that these aren't random samples. Like there was no sociologist that was sending out questionnaires. This is essentially what I could garner from people who were willing to talk about the custom or at the very least reference that their community had practiced it. And so to me, It doesn't necessarily have to be a majority of people using the ritual for it to be something that can be embraced by the descendant community or be a a significant part of the cultural identity of a group. Because what I also found in regards to jumping the broom across all of the groups that used it is that it was never something that was universally embraced by any group. Um, If you look at British Romani groups or Welsh groups that are known to have practiced it, there are plenty of references to marriage within those groups that don't mention jumping the broom. And so jumping the broom seems to have attracted people that positioned a certain type of meaning upon the ritual and did so for their own reasons. And so I would never suggest anybody dismisses it just because it's not the majority of references, because what it is is that it is actually the most used folk custom when talking about marriage among enslaved people. So it was not the ritual that dominated most people's framework for ritualized marriage, but it was the folk custom that was used most prominently. And that's by far true.
1: And, and thank you for that, because I think um, it's very important because like I said, when I saw the 28th, row, I was like, damn. Uh, but then I had to uh, take a step back and think like the significance is still there. It's there's a reason why despite it's uh origins across the pond not in the not on the continent of Africa but in Europe that even over there it wasn't predominant but it still is an important uh part of african american culture um, and this is also, uh, your answer is also a great way, um, in speaking about sources about how you analyze sources. And so, because you attempted to delve deeper into the multicultural origins of this black wedding ritual that we now know of now, um, what methods did you employ to aid your book's analyses? And also, did you speak to white stateside and or abroad that adopted the ritual or even, you know, knew about it?
0: Yeah, this is a good question. So I think the first part to answer is that um, you're always seeking to find a methodology, particularly in graduate school, when you're being introduced to the approaches that scholars used. And because I was using slightly different sources than most people, like the, the traditional sources of plantation journals or the writings of, you know, white itinerant missionaries, they didn't really tell me much. Like they weren't describing this particular ritual. They weren't really referencing it. So much of what I was using was essentially what one would call folklore, um, documented folklore from folklorists who were actually cataloging and collecting community narratives that oftentimes, to be very honest, historians dismissed. Um, and actually one, one prominent example is, you know, John Blassingame's Slave Community, An excellent book, um, really kind of a game changer within this particular field, he actually is somewhat dismissive of the WPA sources in regards to jumping the broom. Um, And and I referenced this in the book a little bit as to kind of how the framework for understanding the value of sources is is somewhat hindered in the historical profession on both sides of the Atlantic because there were some um, British-based scholars who were also... um, a little suspicious of the validity of the sources. And so for me, I actually leaned upon the methods of folklorists pretty heavily and anthropologists because I saw those disciplines as the ones that were taking seriously, at least the most, to the voices of the subaltern and the marginalized. And so if someone references a folk ritual that maybe one doubts because there's supernatural components, that's a source I wanted to use and I wanted to understand. And so in in a somewhat deliberate fashion, and this is actually where uh, writers groups are of immense benefit, I was told to place the opening vignette that is now part of my introduction. It was originally placed in the chapter on slavery in the 19th century, but they said, no, you need to put that in the front um, to show people the depth of meaning that this particular ritual had for certain individuals that used it. And, you know, if you read that particular narrative, there's so much to go off of as to the the really deep and rich meanings that broomstick rituals and performances thereof could have for enslaved couples. And so I would say that I, I took seriously, you know, social history components of the approach, but also... The other aspect that I thought was contributing to this particular conversation about marriage and particularly jumping the broom was the Atlantic paradigm. So Atlantic history being a model that, you know, Alison Games suggests is this idea that you expand beyond, I think what she calls, parochial boundaries. And you try to find connections. Like it's a way to introduce young scholars to the possibilities of expanding beyond Um, traditional boundaries of historical scholarship. And so for me, um, I hadn't really seen a lot of scholars undertake the Atlantic paradigm when talking about jumping the broom. There were some references to the understanding that this may have come from English villages or rural British Isles, but there wasn't really a connected framework. So I took a lot of initiative in that regard because I felt that the Atlantic paradigm and Atlantic history provided a model to make that particular intervention. I'm not sure if I would have asked as broad of questions if it hadn't been encouraged by the rise of that type of of history and, and the position of African descended people within that broader framework. So I would say that the methods that really guided me the most were utilizing Um, theories from anthropologists and folklorists as well as Atlantic historians, but also taking seriously the historiography of um, cultural history, but also specifically the histories of of slave marriages, both across the U.S. as well as the, the Caribbean. So to the second part of the question, um, it was a little harder to find those types of sources because, and I even have this subheading in, in one of the chapters of the book about, you know, do white people still jump the broom? Because it's it's not nearly as prominent with a, with a couple of exceptions. There is some evidence that throughout the 20th century, Cajun communities continue to do it in kind of this annual celebration um, of their cultural traditions. Um, and then basically the only other resource that you have outside of what we might call neo-pagan weddings that are kind of on the rise now in the 21st century, is you have songs, song lyrics of, you know, white folk songs, particularly from Kentucky or Appalachia, more broadly, where they talk about jumping the broomstick. And and usually they're using the colloquial expression about, you know, this means just to get married because of kind of the rural circumstances that it, most people inhabited in that region. So I didn't really meet a lot of white people stateside, even white Southerners in the South, that if even if they had heard of it, knew anybody that had actually done it. Um, I probably could have found that. But, you know, it just it wasn't something that was turning out um, really any significant evidence on that part that that required me to go to a number of collections that had references to old songs or old poems that were written Within a number of these communities, particularly like in the 1930s or '40s, um, where people were still living in rural circumstances and relied upon these cultural traditions to manifest their marriages.
1: And following up on that one, um, you, you talked about Cajun folks, but you know, I know p- the pandemic has just just reduced uh, to rubble so many people's Opportunities to to do uh, more archival research and and, and other uh, travels just generally, but did you ever get a chance either in your dissertation or the lead up to the book to to travel to the British Isles uh, because you know that's obviously so significant? Uh, did you did you ever get a chance to either travel or to correspond with people um, over in in that way?
0: Yeah, I did. Um, Britain became a place that I, I really grew to love. I mean, I, I really liked going to London. I, I, I liked learning about the history. I liked going to the libraries. I mean, these are some of the most, you know, amazing collections through, in really the world, one could argue. And so <clears throat> for my dissertation specifically, uh, the British Library, uh, the National Archives, various different repositories all throughout uh, the British Isles, including the National Library of Scotland, became incredibly important. Uh, for my dissertation research, and you know, if anybody wants to read the dissertation, you could probably find it. It has just uh, an immense amount of archival repositories from the British Isles as well as as in the Caribbean as well. Now, one thing I did find is that, as I as I noted a little earlier, jumping the broom doesn't really appear in a lot of these formal governmental documents that would otherwise be referencing some aspects of marriages of enslaved people that I was looking for in in other contexts. But one thing that was pretty interesting that I did find was a very large cutout of this image that I end up using in the book that essentially reflects two people jumping or in some degree flying over a broomstick when it's led by an elderly woman in front of them. And so I was actually able to look at the original cutout of that while I was at the British Library and really engage with it in real time, because the only other time I had seen that image was via the computer screen. And while that's, that's useful, it, you, know, you feel like there's kind of this invisible shield that might be blocking you from really analyzing it. So I was able to sit in the British Library for a couple of hours and just kind of look at that depiction in real time from like the original materials. And I think that was kind of a transcendent event for me. So I didn't find a lot of references to Jumping the Broom in the British archives, but I did find that one that talks about marrying over the broomstick. And I think that was a critical piece of information going forward and how I was going to use um, visual mediums to also examine the cultural context of Jumping the Broom. Um, But also, In regards to where else I went, um, I went to Virginia. I used the library uh, in in a variety of areas there. Um, I found a few references to jumping the broom in the archives in those particular locations, which was proved incredibly useful. Um, But then, here is kind of an interesting thing to think about when we're talking about doing research in the digital era: is that I really wanted to go to Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, because Southern University also housed one of the original um, collections that kind of sparked this interest in folklore among formerly enslaved people. And I think that it was undertaken in either the 1910s or the 1920s, John B. Cade's collection to be specific. Um, But right when I was gonna go, the hurricane had hit at that point. I don't remember what year, but there was significant damage that had occurred to the archive and they had effectively had to close for multiple years before they could actually um, allow people to visit. And I had been contacting the, the lead archivist and she said they were working on digitizing the collection, but I didn't hear for so long that eventually I kind of forgot about that collection or I had essentially surrendered to the reality that I might not be able to look at it before I actually wrote the book, but I had to write the book. I had to get it out. And I'm not joking with you. Right before I think I'm done with the book writing, one of my friends just casually posts on Facebook, has no idea that I'm looking for, that I've been waiting for this collection. She just casually posts that the John B. Cade collection of former slave narratives is now available to peruse online. And so... (laughs) <laughs> I Goodness on, gracious, dude. man. Like what yeah. was
1: that initial like w- like oh. you're just surfing, minding your own damn business and then right. boom, as Madden right. would say.
0: You're just kind of scrolling on Facebook and I see her post this. Actually, she doesn't even know it's her, but I'll just say Catherine Bank Catherine uh Silva is the one that had posted it. And I I don't think I had ever clicked on something so fast in my life. Like I, I couldn't believe it like it was not even in my mind at that point. And so it didn't it didn't require me to take a long time like in a, maybe a few additional months, but I have been waiting for those sources so long that I, I just really wanted to include them in the bibliography. So in in that regard, I should also note to people that don't underestimate the value of social media contacts in helping you finish your um, your research in that regard, because you never know, you know, that you're, you're posting this resource who's looking and who might need it at that time. So even though I didn't get to go to Baton Rouge and the Southern university, I was still able to access the digital collection due to the heroic work of all the archivists at that institution, people who stay attuned to what's going on in the profession and what collections are available in the digital humanities. So Um, That's another kind of unique uh, piece of information that that may prove useful to people listening.
1: Well, hey, y'all, we're going to make sure that folks get it because it's definitely important, especially as Omicron is taking over and, you know, research trips are not, you know, they're they're either being altered or outright expunged, um, at least for the time being. So. Definitely, uh, shout out to everybody. And actually, on on this day, uh, shout out to Doctor. Oh, was a, a doc. Well, not Doctor, but shout out to Dorothy Berry over at the Houghton Library, who slavery. I think slavery, abolition, and emancipation. Uh, like digital collection that she helped spearhead. Uh, that that focused attention. That now I think today was the day that it uh, came out, and today is Friday, January seventh. At least on the East Coast, at six forty four p.m. Um, it's dark and with snow out here in Philadelphia. I was, uh, I was, uh, I was uh, scraping and getting all that shit. And I'm looking outside your door and I'm like, oh goodness gracious, the yeah, beauty! Yeah.
0: We've got the the partial cloudy skies and um, right,
1: the sun's coming through. Depending wow. on where your head is located, yeah. uh, man, it's, it's 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 beautiful, man. And so, um, so I, I'm very interested uh, to, to to hear your answer to this and for folks listening as well. So jumping in the broom is a well-known, obvious phrase within Black U.S. communities. But what did your research find about the actual origins of the phrase and the practice? What was the earliest um, notification that you can find in the timeline of, of, of U.S. Black folks of jumping the broom or whatever, you know, uh, phrase folks have used, but I also know that jumping the broom" as the formal phrase in a, yes, three words is not always the, the, the word choice of, of all narrators.
0: Yes. So this is, I think where Dr. Hunter's blurb comes into play and that people might be surprised about the, the origins of the custom. And we've alluded to it in the, throughout the duration of the interview, but to be very kind of explicit, Jumping the Broom, as far as I could find, um, originates at some unknown point in Western Europe with the most prolific documentation occurring and existing within the British Isles. And once again, taking seriously references to folklore, if references to um, maybe apocryphal sources can be trusted or at least utilized, there's at least one reference and one person at least believed that one of the earliest references to the custom came in about the 16th century. It's just a very quick um, and kind of subtle reference to the custom, but it specifically references its use amongst kind of ostracized populations that existed within the British Isles. And so trying to set all of this framework up as to why and how it becomes introduced into enslaved communities in what became the United States is that, as far as I can tell, the people that used it were considered amongst the most marginalized populations within the British Isles. So these are individuals that were often mocked in popular literature. These are people that couldn't read or write usually. Sometimes these people were considered transients, nomadic, Um, This is where the British Romani populations become a prominent reference amongst people who are writing about the custom being used amongst them. But it also seems to be attached to people who, while nominally Christian, also have a fervent belief in the non-Christian supernatural. So these are communities that trusted the power of herbal remedies. These are people who believed that ghosts, uh, so-called ghosts, or spirits walked amongst them. And they also believe that tools like the broomstick had supernatural powers and that these powers could be used for either good or evil reasons. Um, And so to some degree, it makes sense that these are the communities that would retain a certain tradition of jumping the broomstick. Now, I don't know how old it is. I don't know how who the first person or couple was to jump over a broomstick. But we do know that a number of communities that testified to having used it believed that their distant ancestors were familiar with it and that the practice came from somewhere, um, some precedent in their ancestral heritage. And subsequently as groups contact one another and you're, and I'm thinking specifically here of the British Romani who, kind of traveled around the British Isles and exchanged cultural traditions with various groups, you start to see different people who otherwise had very little to do with each other performing a similar ritual activity. So it's most associated with Welsh communities, uh, particularly Northern Wales in particular, um, has kind of a very deep and rich cultural tradition of using it um, in the early 19th century. Um, Then you also have Scottish communities uh, referencing it. But another thing that you find in the literature of the British Isles is that the kind of the so-called elite writers used it as a subject of mockery and scorn against those who used it. So the practitioners themselves took it seriously. They took seriously what it meant as far as a ritual and cultural identity. But those who were outside of that framework saw it as a subject to mock those who used it which when you read the book, you see these visual images that kind of have these exaggerated expressions amongst the communities that are using them or who are supposed to have been using them. So it's very it's I I refrain from calling it a European or a British ritual because it seems very clear to me that there were a lot of Europeans or British people that did not use it. This was a very specific tradition amongst marginalized and ostracized populations. Um, And they retained that tradition through their oral traditions as much as they could. And as far as I can tell, or what I would assume, they retained these traditions as they crossed the Atlantic, particularly into North America, the United States in particular. Now, in regards to how and when it becomes a cultural tradition amongst enslaved people, that's much harder. Um, Well, it probably is as hard in some ways because... Um, Number one, a number of enslaved people are not documenting their own history. Uh, What I'm gathering is largely written by people outside the group or the community. But the earliest reference I could find, and I believe I'm remembering this date correctly, is in about 1810, when I'm reading a newspaper report about an individual who gained his freedom, um, had been married as an enslaved person via jumping the broom, and it said something along the lines of, you know, three decades earlier, this individual had married in this particular way. So I did the math. Maybe it was 1814, one of those two, in the 1810s. And essentially, what I had discovered is that was the first documented reference to Jump in the Broom. Like That was the first time I could actually try to place a date upon its use. So what all I really know is that by the what is called the antebellum period in the 19th century, it was a relatively well-known and commonplace tradition among many enslaved communities. Not all of them, but many. All of that to say, what I assume happened is maybe one of two things. It's either the slaveholder introduced it into the enslaved community, which seems pretty clear amongst some of the sources that, that I've seen. The other is that enslaved people probably saw different people using it Um, there was an underground network of enslaved people free people of color poor whites working-class whites to where they would meet up in kind of these underground areas and you know exchange different cultural traditions with one another um, in ways that were not often seen by what would be called the slaveholding class and so I say that that's a possibility because there's a couple of references to the ways in which formerly enslaved people remembered the tradition and the ways they would talk about how other people used it. So there's one in particular um, about a person who was once enslaved in North Carolina. He talks about how within his plantation, enslaved people jumped over the broom. And but then he qualifies the statement. He says, but the poor white folks did the same thing. And once again, applying kind of this anthropological technique of looking at every word as having significant meaning, he didn't say the white folks did the same thing. He says the poor white folks did the same thing. So he, he specifies that there's a particular type of white person that is known to also use this custom. And that resonates with the conclusions I was making across the Atlantic when you're talking about marginalized people. And so even if you look in the context of the 19th century, particularly the antebellum era, the white people who are using it are, as mentioned, Louisiana Cajuns who are very much um, isolated in many ways throughout the Louisiana bayous, but also Appalachian white communities who themselves live in a mountain range that, for either reasons that they wanted or didn't want, Provided very little contact with those outside their community, so they're able to retain these cultural traditions in that particular way.
1: And that makes me think too. Like I, I, I you know, actually before I get there, have you had a conversation with Carrie Lee Merritt about that? Because I'd be very interested to know. Because you know, she's written the most recent book. Uh, we're not talking about Hill Billy Elegy here, where you know that that Vance guy, you know, kicking him about here. Right. But you know, with 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 her work, right? I'd be very interested. Uh, to know, you know, in her own um, explorations and, and, and the archives and the, and the folks that she, you know, uh, grew up with andor or uh, has written about, it, whether or not, because, you know, you're talking about Appalachia here, whether or not she has uh, come across any as well. That would be very interesting.
0: Yeah, this is a great, great question because um, I think the first time her and I met was via Twitter, um, as, yep, as yep. Most contacts are made now. And um, there was a question that somebody posed about whether or not jumping the broom was a real tradition, because there, there have been some questions about whether or not it actually existed. And so this was just this general Twitter question that people started sharing. And, you know, Carrie Lee Merritt had jumped in and said, you know, if you read the WPA narratives, you see a lot of resources about um, formerly enslaved people talking about it. And then some people had tagged me. And I don't think I knew her at the time. I knew her scholarship, I knew her work, but we had never um, exchanged any type of conversation on that platform. And that's kind of where um, there was a much more robust discussion about how prolific Jumping the Broom actually was. Um, But I've never talked to her really about the poor white aspect of it, but I would love to hear because that's actually the group that I've heard less from. Like I've been contacted by you know people who practice neo-celtic or you know pagan traditions from kind of a, a european perspective i've heard from african americans who have read the book and they've all been really interested in discussing some of the conclusions further but i haven't heard a, a lot from white southerners uh who are familiar with the particular work but i should say you know carrie lee Merritt is referenced in in the book i mean her book was an amazing um, contribution to the literature about understanding, you know, white people who were not slaveholders within the antebellum South, and so the the book is referenced. But I, I haven't had much of a conversation about that particular question as to whether or not it exists still uh, to some degree within white southern communities
1: mm-hmm. yeah and, and and what you bring up is a question about labor and class uh is that that also comes up in in the book um and so can you talk about how you know labor and class dynamics within enslaved communities actually played a role in who actually got to um jump the broom and and who even wanted to do or didn't want to as a result
0: Yeah, this is an important um, point that I I think might even explain why there were less people than I expected as a percentage actually talking about jumping the broom, because it also reflected that there were distinctions within the community as to who was supposed to jump the broom. Now, you have to take the respondents at their word as 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 far as what they said happened, because It becomes very clear when you start reading the WPA narratives, but also even the literature beforehand. William Wells Brown talks about this in in some of his pieces that he produced describing slavery in the U.S. South to where there were these stratifications, you might say, um, or self, you know, stratifications within the community to where enslaved people who lived in the house saw themselves as very distinct from those who were in the field um, to the point where field hand was a term used to describe and differentiate someone who was working in the fields versus one was in the house and a lot of people have written about this as far as the distinctions within the community uh, more broadly but for my purposes specifically i found it interesting that jumping the broom actually became a defining factor within these particular discussions. And, and what I mean by that is you will find uh, ex-formerly enslaved people who, when asked, they will say, well, I was, I was in the house. I was, a domest- I was an enslaved domestic. And then they would say, if they were asked about jumping the broom, they would say something like, we didn't jump a broom. We didn't do that. And sometimes they would elaborate even further saying, that's something that field hands did. We didn't do that in the house. We we got a marriage with a minister. We got, you know, my mistress allowed me to use her dress. We had a large amount of food. It was attended by all these different people. And so for them, they would describe these weddings that in some ways mirrored the weddings of Southern aristocrats at that time. But then you would also see occasional references. There's at least one that I can think of to where uh, a woman who is enslaved in the house specifically jumps the broom because she doesn't want to be enslaved in the house anymore. She wants to join people in the field because she said in the house there there weren't any fun. Like it wasn't it wasn't a great place to be because from sunup, To sundown, people were laboring in the field, but then there was an opportunity to go back to the quarters and actually um, engage in community support and community rituals. Whereas in the house, you were essentially stuck and on call 24 hours a day. Um, And you were expected to behave a certain way at all times. And so it makes sense to me that jumping the broom becomes something much more affiliated with people who are laboring in the fields, because that allowed them an opportunity to create it on their own terms or to structure it in a way that they could recognize that spoke to their own cultural identities. Now, this wasn't always the case. There were instances where slave owners seem to have manipulated the ritual. But broadly, it seems to me that enslaved people um, in these various communities using various cultural traditions saw this as something of their own their own ingenuity had created this ritual that had significant meaning to them and there's even one publication that was produced by a northern white abolitionist who comes down to the south to effectively take the position as governess which we would understand as a tutor for for white southern children but she becomes interested in the communities of enslaved people in the field and and the traditions that they're enacting. And so there's at least one point where she documents a broomstick tradition taking place amongst the field hands. And the way she portrays the ritual is one to where it appears that the enslaved people are performing this independently of any outside influence. And, they, and at least the, the person who is leading it, who's called Uncle Aaron. He's an elder within the enslaved community. Um, And and he's kind of known to hold supernatural powers is why people trust him, And so he's leading the ceremony. He tells people to jump over the broomstick. And then he explicitly says, this is something that's reserved for field hands, but this is valid to us. Now I'm paraphrasing, but that's effectively what he says. And so that was the type of evidence I was looking for, because regardless of what a person thinks about the value or the validity of jumping the broom in the 21st century, if you read a number of these narratives, many enslaved people saw it as valuable to them. And they used it and recreated it um, in a way that provided them stability under bondage.
1: And so that just, you know, when we talk about like resistance and enslaved people's, resi- enslaved people's resistance, um, the the story that you uh, uncovered here is also one where jumping the broom, in at least in this particular instance, uh, for for the enslaved woman uh, that's in the house, was actually an act of of, of pseudo—I don't even want to say pseudo, but it was an act of resistance. Um, what yeah. would you say?
0: Yeah, I would say it is—it is—it's rebellion, um, because she's she's risking a lot by telling, you know, the, the, the white people in the house that she no longer wants to be there, because. The, potentially they could see that as an affront to their position because there's there's also another source that I use that's almost the exact opposite of the previous description I just provided in that some enslaved people in the house were actually punished with a broomstick wedding because it was assumed to be beneath them. And so there's at least one, I think it's a fictional account, but it's based upon what the author claims were, were real life experiences, to where this enslaved woman in the house rejects the partner that is selected for her um, by the mistress. The mistress beats her and abuses her, and then as kind of the, one of the final moments of embarrassment, forces her and the man to jump over a broomstick that's held by two chairs. So it could also be a tool of dominance and humiliation as well when wielded by the white slave owners. But on the other hand, this is where nuance is important. It also becomes a tool of resistance and rebellion when wielded by enslaved people. So it's also difficult because it's hard to draw one general conclusion about what this system means in the context of the 19th century, because that could vary depending on what source what source you have. But what what seems very clear to me is that there were a majority of people of African descent did view it favorably, or at the very least claimed it was an authentic tradition that their community used and sought value within when they engaged in marriage.
1: Outstanding, outstanding. And as we pivot towards uh, the final round of questions here, um, I'm, I'm also very interested to know um, that considering the, really the Atlantic dimensions, right, of the story about how does the Caribbean flow into this, right? Because as we all know, the majority of, of uh, the, the most powerful British colonies were not in North America. Uh, they were in the Caribbean. So um, within the scope of your research... How does and have you ever found any uh, references to enslaved people in, at, at the very least, uh, the British Atlantic uh, colonies jumping the broom either now or even within the diasporic dimensions of maybe the 18th or 19th or the 20th centuries?
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll try to be brief here because this, this is... <laughs> i sure it's loaded. There's there's a lot of things <laughs> yeah, you could say. Into another hour. But um, I, I guess this is there's there's two ways to think about how the book deals with the caribbean on the one hand it is clear that there is some presence being felt amongst african-americans and this is where we can take it in the 20th and 21st century who are using something along the lines of destination weddings to jamaica and using african-american traditions um, in view of jamaicans who are also of african descent And there was at least some turn in the late 90s and early 2000s to where you would find Jamaican nationals also using the broomstick tradition in their marriage or courtship traditions even um, under the guise that they believed this was an African tradition, which I spent some time in the book trying to debunk. But I thought it was an interesting cultural adaptation because it does go into these concepts of unity and Pan-Africanism and shared cultural traditions amongst particularly those who were a product of the British Atlantic to where there might be an assumption that if you see a group of Black people performing one ritual, that if you believe it comes from Africa, then you can also integrate it into your own cultural framework. So that's, that's what seems to be happening or had happened in Jamaica for a time in, in the modern era. But when you go back to the actual sources, particularly in the 19th century um, as Jumping the Broom is is gaining some cultural currency amongst people in the U.S. South, you really don't see references to Jumping the Broom in any parts of the West Indies, um, and you, you don't see it being discussed or talked about after slavery ends either. So this tells me at least one thing, that... If the tradition comes from the British Isles, where all sources point to that being the reality, then it would probably be found in areas that were influenced by British culture of, and it's in some capacity. Now, I don't think it is integrated into parts of the West Indies, particularly because these were black majority societies and were populated by enslavers who usually didn't live in the area. So um, I think these are called absentee plantations. And so the amount of white people that were enacting any type of cultural influence upon people enslaved in the West Indies is, does seem to be minimal in, in many respects and, and not in the capacity that was occurring within the United States so you don't actually see it being adopted or adapted in any other parts of the atlantic with one exception and there because there is some evidence that enslaved people in the island of bermuda were known to use the ritual in some capacity and that tells me a couple of things that bermuda had the circumstances that allowed cultural exchanges to happen because there was a larger percentage of British influence within that particular colony, which seems to line up with what happened in the United States. Because the other thing that I didn't really mention in the book, so this is kind of insider information for all of your podcast listeners who have made it this far into the podcast, um, is that I actually didn't find a lot of references to in the Broom in South Carolina, which kind of makes sense when you think that, particularly with the coastline of South Carolina, it is much more of a black majority space that is much more invested in the retention or at least the adjustment of African cultural traditions in that area. Whereas I find it proliferating much more in other parts of the United States, uh, but particularly the areas of the former Confederacy. So it tells me that British cultural influence could only occur in areas that white people were either equal in number or the majority population. And then subsequently, that means that if the ritual is adopted, it then becomes adapted by the community and formed into something that they consider their own.
1: And, you know, I think this is a great way to pivot as our final uh, question, formally about the book um because in terms of surprises i think that many of your list or many of your readers and the listeners who are of course going to buy the book we know that yes. everybody support unc press come on now <laughs> yeah. um but your your eighth chapter to create our own rituals same-sex marriage and the symbolic value of jumping the broom that one i actually had to go back to the table of contents because I was like, oh, I didn't I didn't I must have forgotten that from the reading the introduction. So where especially because 2015 plays a pivotal role, if I I remember the year correctly, I, I believe 2015 plays a pivotal role. At what point in the book process did this chapter come to light? And I guess in your original thought process, was this originally part of the book?
0: Really glad you asked that question. Um, because there is a a deeper story here that that I will contain to a few minutes, hopefully. Um, So when I first conceptualized writing this book, I thought that it was going to be strictly historical going up to 1865 and then maybe an epilogue afterward, Um, because, you know, I was trained in kind of traditional colonial 19th century history. Um, I didn't think I had much to say about the present. I thought that was better for other people to do. But as I continued writing and as I became more and more invested in the stories of Margaret Walker and Alex Haley, who formed some of these later chapters in the book, what you might call the second half, and how jumping the broom seems to have survived this era after slavery to where you do find a number of people kind of rejecting it as, as of any value, something they wanted to leave behind. And so as I continued to go through and march through multiple decades and get up to the 1990s is when I started to notice more and more references to same-sex couples using the ritual. But it wasn't entirely clear to me what the racial identities of these couples were. It was kind of framed, and those who came of age in the 90s might remember the way a lot of things were reported is kind of like in this colorblind fashion, right? You didn't really mention the identities of people you were talking about under the assumption that, you know, we're all human, it doesn't matter anymore. That was kind of like the 90s framework. And at least as far as I could tell with this particular research. But I started to think that I started accumulating so many sources that I needed to say something on this. And I thought that originally what I was going to do based upon what I was able to find, is I could do like this section of one of my chapters, you know, touching on this particular question about the use of jumping the broom amongst um, same-sex couples. And ultimately, what this led me to is, I was in a writing group in Southern California when I taught at Cal State Fullerton, and I gave them this original chapter that included that piece about same-sex marriage. And they said, this needs to be a chapter. You have to write more on this. And I was a little worried because I'm like, I don't know if I have the sources. But then this is when I relied upon very generous friends who knew a lot more than I did about this particular topic. And I started accessing um, the debates about marriage among same sex couples. And then I was able to kind of build a broader narrative about the prominence of race in these debates. And what I effectively concluded is that what seems to have happened uh, prior to 2015 is that you had both black and white same-sex couples jumping over the broomstick, and oftentimes there were interracial couples doing it as well. And the leaders of what you could call the same-sex marriage movement were usually white and middle class. And they were using this particular custom as a way to draw comparisons between the plight of those arguing for the recognition of same-sex marriage to the historic disenfranchisement of enslaved people from the, the tradition of marriage. Now that's problematic for a variety of reasons I go into in the book, but it was interesting within that particular cultural moment because it seems to have been very convincing for a number of people that, yes, we can't disbar anybody from enjoying the privileges of a legally recognized marriage because this is what the U.S. used to do in the 19th century to people of African descent. But after 2015, after the Supreme Court hands down the decision that marriage should be recognized on a federal level um, and that same-sex marriage is included within that recognition, all of a sudden, Jumping the Broom disappears from the narratives of white um, civil rights workers for same-sex marriage. And that tells me that there was a reason for a number of black same-sex couples to be a bit angered by the reality that it seemed that they were using it as a tool just to gain a certain goal. Um, but it wasn't. It was detected that it wasn't an authentic method forward. So, I started dealing with all of these questions surrounding race, sexuality, and identity um, that I otherwise wouldn't have done if my um, writing group hadn't encouraged me to do so.
1: Once again, shout out to writing groups for saving the MF day um, for <laughs> yes. sure, man. And so, um, pivoting towards our our final. A set of questions here. Now that the book is out, right, what lessons did the book research, writing, and publication process teach you the most about yourself?
0: Wow, you really have to do things on your own terms, because if you are not fulfilled by the process... (sighs) you'll still end up being miserable, even if the book is out. Like, I thought that after the book was published, I would have this kind of sweeping sense of completion. But, you know, in some ways, that only occurs if the book has significant meaning to you. Like, if you allow... Somebody else to manipulate your project to something that is no longer recognizable to you, you need to kind of take a step back and and question whether or not this person or people are helping you. Like I had the benefit of having very supportive colleagues who saw the value in the project and the value in what I was doing. Now, I should say, not everybody felt that way. And there were more than a few obstacles from some senior scholars about this particular project, but it was very easy for me to essentially not listen to them. And that was probably the best decision I'd made Um, because it's so easy to get burned out during the writing process. If you fall out of love with the project and you might even love the project for what it is, but the process just doesn't fulfill you. And so you also have to find the best approach for yourself. I actually am not good with small blocks of time when I write. I'm not, I don't get particularly inspired during 15 minute sessions and I'm not good at writing sentences at a time. Like I need large blocks of time to write. And so I I had to establish my schedule to where I might not have been writing every day, but I felt that if I was writing every other day and I was making up for what I may have missed within that particular time frame that I wasn't writing, I was okay with that. Like I, I wasn't, um, beating myself up over something that I wasn't able to do because I also, I also wrote most of this book while I had my first child. And as a first time father, mm. I was, you know, I was really, Say that, I mean, yeah. So you really just have to find what works for you. Some people are very good at keeping a daily schedule on writing. I will openly admit I am not that person. And so the fact that I could produce a book, For anybody listening, you can too. It can happen. You just have to find a way that works for you. And for me, it was saying, well, I can't write today, but tomorrow I can find an hour and a half to where I can sit down and think for 15 minutes and then start the writing process. And wherever it takes me, it takes me. Um, And then the book was eventually done after that point. So, you know, I would and I would also say, you know, congratulate yourself, celebrate, um, tell everybody about it unapologetically advertise your book to everybody. No, it. Um, and, and this was hard for me I was I'm all I'm a pretty quiet person like when people meet me I'm, I'm pretty good once I get to know people but I'm not great in large crowds so I did have to learn to be proud of my book and to mention it to people and, and be proud of it and to show them that I was enthusiastic about the project um, because why would they be if I'm not so mm. I think that that's one thing I had to learn after, you know, the first big publication came out in my academic career.
1: And so, you know, spaces are very important um, to me. And, you know, I'm I'm in this office that a year ago I would have never thought I would have had. So all these books behind me, um, Mm I'm actually just um, uh, my girlfriend's in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, and I visited her. And uh, we, we're, we're book, we go to bookshops and, and all that stuff. And so yeah. I actually found um, uh, Daniel Littlefield's uh, uh, book on, on rice. It was a yeah. rice and slaves. Yeah. And so I'm about to post out on Twitter um, after we get off here uh, or actually you know, tomorrow. I got to, I got I to post about this first. Leave yes. Daniel Littlefield tomorrow. But, um, but it always reminds me of how, how spaces oftentimes can, can help us help inspire us. So, with that being said, uh, listeners to the New Books to African American Studies podcast will definitely know where I'm going here. Uh, so if you had all the money you needed to build, your, to build your own writing, reading, and thinking space, where would it be, right? Where's, where's the location? What would it look like? What would it smell like? Maybe what art would you get, right? You're talking about culture, uh, this cultural history here. Um, and what is playing in the background, too? Paint the picture for the people, my friend.
0: Wow. Yeah. Okay. So there's, there's a few different ways to answer this. As a a father of two young children, space is a premium in my life as far as, you know, privacy and not being interrupted. So it's hard to imagine this particular question, but my, cause my current office at my home is co-opted by my children who literally moved their little art desk into the corner of my office. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of creative production in that space, but I would say that This is another frustration that Chanel has with me in that I'm kind of nonchalant and indifferent to a lot of things. Like, I'm just happy if I can find a place that's quiet at this point in my life. And so a lot of this book, to be very honest with you, was written at a Starbucks down the street from where I lived. Um, And I had a routine every time I would go in there. So once again, finding a routine that works for you. I just, I ordered plain coffee. I sat down, only pulled out my laptop and just started writing. Um, and that and you know the it had windows, I could see things on the outside, but now that i I have an office space that I rather enjoy at the university, if I had all of the ability to invest, <clears throat> I hope this isn't too disappointing for people, but here's kind of what I envision being in that space. I do want it to be on an upper level, I want it to have a giant window just for some reason that that works for me. I like being able to see things and You know, what was funny is that Dan Littlefield, my advisor, he had an he had an office. If you've ever been to Thomas Cooper Library at the University of South Carolina, it was built upside down in the basement. So when you go to floor five, you're technically going to the fifth floor in the basement. (laughs) Yeah, it's 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 unique. So if you have an office in the basement, you have no windows. You're literally underground. And so he would he would like place pictures of the ocean In his office so it made him feel like he could see outside but for me windows work really well for me i I like seeing the sun i like seeing the clouds i like seeing the rain i like seeing activity you know noiseless activity to some degree occurring on the outside um, I prefer that a window faces the mountains, which I'm very lucky. You you may not be able to see uh, in my current. It's office.
1: so beautiful behind y'all. y'all. Y'all, you can't. This is a <laughs> y'all. Y'all can't see this. This is obviously not a a video component here, but Tyler and I can see each other. And y'all, it is so beautiful back there. Goodness gracious. Yeah,
0: yeah and I actually fled to my university office today so I could make sure that we weren't interrupted. So I, I do like that. But you know, here's here's what I think the equipment that goes in here. I mean, obviously I like to keep things pretty simple. Like I don't like a lot of stuff on my desk. Um, I want to make sure I have like a Nespresso machine with, with endless pods forever. Like I never have to order them. They just keep coming <laughs> magically. Um, and then, uh, I would have paintings by Jonathan Green, which I can't yet afford, um, proliferating throughout my office. If you've never seen a Jonathan Green painting, Google it right now, and I can guarantee you'll fall in love with the way he uses colors and the way he's inspired by the South Carolina coastline in all of his paintings. And, you know, I've lived in California, beautiful coastline in the Pacific, but I will go to my grave contending that nothing matches the beauty of the South Carolina coastline. And so much of his art is inspired by kind of the Gola and the Geechee communities. And so I would buy that type of artwork that would go throughout. I also have a lot of artwork drawn by my children, which are, at the time they drew them, were scribbles, but they have deep meaning. And in many ways, those are what kind of motivate me to continue the process of writing um, so that hopefully one day they can read the books and enjoy them. Um, I also enjoy um, pictures of family trips that I've taken. So one thing that Chanel did for me when I set up my office was she printed out a number of actual pictures we actually had when we were in Scotland and England and put them on the wall for me. So they were, you know, she's much more creative than I am in this way. So it, it really kind of helps with the process of, of writing it. And the students actually like it too. So when, when company comes in, but I'm um, thinking of, you know, smells and, and whatnot, I would think it would have to smell of like seagrass candles Um, Something that mixes in like the salty and kind of the fresh scent of the seagrass on the coast. And honestly, if I was to just have something playing in the background constantly, either jazz, blues, or sounds of nature. But, you know, we can get into more specifics about that in a minute. But something that kind of allows for um, reflection as soon as somebody enters the premises.
1: Amazing answers, very vivid imagery, um, if, and I think it's it's really cool to also think about right uh, as well taking your family all, all, always with you as well because you just mentioned right you're in uh, uh, you're in the British Isles and, and your and your wife is there with you too so you know yeah. that's also uh, something that y'all can uh, bond over as well not only the the fact that y'all actually conducted the 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 jumping of the broom ritual but also. The road, the literal road that y'all went on, too, um, in terms of your archival um, experiences and uh, your your experiences in in, in the area, too. Yeah. Um, and and so, and, you know, you alluded to it, so we'll go right there. You know, I, I love this question. Uh, Dr. Vanessa Holden actually connect, created a whole playlist. Uh, I think uh, in in, in uh, pre- preparing for our interview because of this question. So I'm interested to know, especially because of our uh, constant discussions about uh, Druggist Waves from uh, from Lupe Fiasco and the piece that you wrote for Black Perspectives about it. Um, if you had to choose seven songs, that would be your Jumping the Broom playlist. Dr. Tyler D. Perry, not with an E, but with an A like the Welsh. Please let the people know what songs would you choose to, to create your seven-song playlist for jumping the broom, let the people know, my friend.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so this list of songs is based upon a few songs that I listened to while writing the book, but also songs that have deep meaning to me and my wife, Chanel, um, that were very much inspiring um, what eventually became this book. And then just a few songs that I think um, really meet the moments of what marriage means to marginalized people who have very little choice sometimes and what they're able to do within classist and racist and oppressive, oppressive societies. So the first, the, there's no real explanation for this song except for the fact that it came out while I was writing the book and I just I fell in love with it, uh, just the way it sounded. But it's Normani's song, Waves. Um, if you've ever seen the video, I think that's what really hooked me into the song, it's essentially she's in outer space and she's singing this song very soulfully. And it's it's more or less about relationships between people, like you come in waves is, is the way the song goes. But it actually reminded me of what I was describing earlier is the way that I write. Like I don't write in small spurts, I just can't do it. Like a lot of my inspiration actually comes in waves. And so the song actually was very inspiring for me while I was writing some of the early stages of this book. And so to not include that song in a playlist about my book, Jumping the Broom, would be a disservice to how much I probably listened to that song um, over the course of actually writing it and finishing the book. The other is Bill Withers, Ain't No Sunshine. And a lot of that song specifically is a song I played very often shortly after Chanel and I were married. Because most people don't know this, but her and I actually have spent a long time apart during our marriage because of the way our professions actually worked out. So when I was going to graduate school, she still had a year left to finish in her undergraduate degree. And then when I got my first job at Cal State Fullerton, she, I believe, had either a year or a year and a half before she was actually able to join me. So we actually lived apart um, during a lot of this process and, you know, Bill Withers and and the various um, versions that have come out of Ain't No Sunshine is, is one that really speaks to me every time I, particularly when I read the acknowledgments of the book. That's, that's, that reminds me of that song. But then there's also Nina Simone's Black is the Color of My True Love's Hair, which is, is not her song originally, but I think she sings it the best. It's a song that I w- we would send to each other during the second phase of when we were apart from each other when I got my first job. Um, and then the, the next two are, are directly embedded into our wedding She walked out to the song At Last by Etta James.
1: Wow, great choice.
0: Yeah, it it was. And um, every time I hear that song, no matter who sings it, it it reminds me of that moment right before we jumped the broom. And then I came out to the song by Floetry called Say Yes. And so those two. Oh,
1: wow. Okay. Okay. I see it.
0: Yeah. So those two songs have a significant meaning because, you know, without them, who knows if this project would come into existence in the way that it did. The next two um, might take us more back to the British Isles, but they're songs that I listen to pretty often because they're about love, loss and distance. Um, one is usually ascribed to Simon and Garfunkel called Scarborough Fair," but the, the actual song is much older as far as some people suggest. It was a medieval song that was sung very often, and it was essentially about two people who could kind of never be together. Like, and the Scarborough Fair was like a reminder of a person that, that was lost uh, by one another. And then um, the other is a song that actually I first heard when I went to Scotland, And it's called The Bonnie Banks of Loch Lomond. And effectively, it's about a person who can never return to his true love. So it's often sung by people who are talking about distance and the impossibility of ever being attached to their partner. And it was a song that I first heard in Scotland, and it would replay in my mind ever so often when I was drafting the first chapter of the book. And so I find deep inspiration in a lot of the words of this playlist. There are probably many more that could be included, but if there was a top seven that I think really encapsulate both the book in its past, present, and future regarding the research, those would be it.
1: Well, y'all, this has been an amazing interview and I can tell y'all as well, that this is probably the reason why Dr. Erica L. Ball, author of To Live an Anti-Slavery Life, Personal Politics, and the Antebellum Black Middle Class, wrote as a prominent blurb, the last one that we'll read for this amazing book of uh, Dr. Tyler uh, Perry's book, ranging from 18th, 18th century England, Scotland, and Wales, through the 19th and uh, 20th century United States To the contemporary United States and Caribbean, this book offers a compelling and illuminating account of a quintessential product of transatlantic exchange, the broomstick wedding. Now, y'all, y'all have been here almost two hours. First of all, congratulations. Thank you. I hope y'all enjoy the ride. Hopefully thousands of y'all enjoying this uh, intellectual journey that uh, Tyler and, and I have gone on. And y'all, please, please support this amazing book. And and once again, the book is entitled "Jumping the Broom: The Surprising and Lord Knows It Was Multicultural Origins of a Black Wedding Ritual." Published in 2020, if I'm not mistaken, by our friends at the University of North Carolina Press. Shout out to everybody over there, Mark, Deb, the whole team, Brandon, everybody. Thank you so much. And, y'all, please, please, please support this book. And if you enjoyed this interview, please rate us and review us wherever you get your podcast. Please rate us a five. If you don't, that's cool, too, but let us know why. And, y'all, until next time, I am your host of New Books in African-American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network for, I don't know, what, the 94th time in the last four and a half going on five years? Over and out.